Hello and welcome to our seventh episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today, Jennifer and I are talking with Nick Nosler and Jim Wallman, meteorologists working in predictive services for the National Interagency Coordination Center, or NIC, at the National Interagency Fire Center, or NIFSI. Welcome, Nick and Jim. Thanks for having us. Yeah, welcome, you guys. So excited to have you on the podcast today. Yes. Yeah, and two of them, too. We're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, this will be great. (laughs) Um, Nick spent the last 13 years in fire as an IA dispatcher, wildland firefighter, and meteorologist. Jim, on the other hand, has spent 21 years in fire, 20 as an incident meteorologist with the National Weather Service, forecasting for over 50 fires. They both forecast weather and potential across the entire United States. So that's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot of weather and forecasting. (laughs) So to get started, though, we want to just kick it off um, with how you got started, how you both got started as a meteorologist, and how you ended up at the fire center. We'll go with you, Nick. How I became a meteorologist, it's, uh, the joke I usually say is once I realized I wasn't going to be an NBA point guard, I said I was going to become <laughs> nice. a meteorologist. So <laughs> took me a little bit longer than I think other people uh, <laughs> realizing that. Um, but yeah, I always had a, a, a passion for weather. Um, I went to University of Oklahoma for my undergrad and then University of Nevada for graduate school and um, started leaning towards fire uh, in undergrad. I was working with uh, emergency managers and um, fire chiefs in Oklahoma, and they were talking about wildland fire in the West. And I was, and they talked about incident meteorologists and everything that goes on. I was like, that sounds really cool. And so for grad school, I tried to go to a place that emphasized fire and fire weather. Um, and I did that. And my advisor, through his contacts, uh, got me seasonal jobs uh, in Western Colorado for three straight years, hired as a initial attack dispatcher or fire logistics dispatcher. And then I would go out on, on engines or crews or fire use modules when, when they would let me. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, as I, as many people say, I got bit by the fire bug and, uh, been here ever since. That's awesome. And, and we love both of these guys cause they do oh, yeah. a lot of, uh, interviews for us in the summertime about weather and what's going to happen this year. So we really appreciate that. I'm glad you're here. How about you, Jim? And and you two have a connection too from earlier days. We do. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, how I got started with weather, first of all, was I was maybe five years old and I was watching the evening newscast and the weather guy came on and I was really into math. So I saw a bunch of the statistics, like the record high, record low type of thing. And I'm like, I love the weather. And my parents, when a couple years later, got me a book on weather, and I just became addicted ever since then. Um, and then, you know, it was something that I, you know, continued in uh, undergrad. I went to Cornell, and then for grad school, I went to the University of Michigan. But fire to me was something completely foreign growing up in New York. So um, I focused back then on lake effect um, systems, and then I ended up moving out west and starting in Albuquerque. And one of the forecasters in Albuquerque um, was an incident meteorologist and he was telling me about it and how challenging it was and how much he enjoyed it. And then I just kind of got bit by the bug then. I said, I'm gonna become an incident meteorologist with the weather service when I started there. And then 
Um, did that for 20 years and then ended up here. So. Awesome. And then uh, as far as like our connection, uh, <laughs> when I was in working in Reno for a long time, uh, Nick you know, did his graduate work there. And so we worked uh, on a project when he was working on his master's degree. I assume it went well because you're working together now. Yes, <laughs> I passed. That's, that's one good thing about grad school: yeah. pass fail. Yeah. <laughs> I like how people are getting bit by the firebug, but differently. Like Jim said, he got bit through weather and being an interesting meteorologist, and then um, they got Nick got by the typical firebug like everybody else does. So these podcasts bring out like the firebug bite in a different way. <laughs> firebug bite, love it. <laughs> yes. Well, on our last episode, we talked with Sean Peterson, the national interagency coordination center assistant manager and he talked about predictive services being a functioner functional area of nick along with management and airspace and logistics and of course the predictive services that you do is meteorology but there's also intelligence and fire analysis um are you involved with the, either of those like maybe fire analysis it, all three we work okay. real close together we uh jokingly call ourselves the A team and send <laughs> each other, you know, <laughs> gifts of the A team and, you know, quotes from it. So yeah, we work real close with each other and yeah, we try to be as integrated as possible. So how does that all work? I guess, can you explain what a Nick meteorologist does? It really depends on how active the, the season is going, the fire year. Um, during when fires are active, typically during, you know, late spring, summer, into, into fall, um, we, are, are quite busy. We start early in the morning um, preparing an email and then we brief uh, decision makers typically in the morning, uh, every morning. And then we, in the afternoon, it's a little bit more free, but we do have some duties. We do have to prepare a report for the, for the next morning situation report. And then um, also send out an email to the decision makers in the afternoon, updating them on what happened uh, weather-wise during the day and if there are any active fires. Yeah, it's... Uh you know, a lot of forecasting goes into it. We look at weather, but the one cool thing that I like about fire is that it's not just weather. You got to integrate fuels, topography, and how it all weaves together to get fire potential and fire activity. And I think that's one of the most challenging and uncertain parts of our job. Um, but I also think it's the most rewarding when you feel like you have a good grasp on it and then you see something happen and you're like, good, I made a good forecast that helped people make good decisions. Speaking of that, how many times do you write? <laughs> That's always a question, 50-50. Yeah. yeah. Uh, either one? Yeah. Either one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. really going to be like, uh, did we answer that? Yeah. I, I mean, writing, that was something when I was growing up I never wanted to do. Um, but, you know, it is a really an integral part of our job. Uh, it's something besides writing the reports those emails uh, during the day. I'm in the off season. We have other reports that we're doing. Um, Nick and I have both uh, taken part in research in, in prior uh, stops on our fire career, and it's something that you know we. I know Nick is especially active in, so it, it's something that you know we, we. It's just part of the job, and you just do it. And we, I've come to enjoy it. And I'm I'm probably a little bit more of a stickler when it comes to to writing and grammar and whatnot and which is funny because I used to be the exact opposite but going through research and writing for a number of different audiences and then really realizing what you write and you hit send you don't know where it's going and always try to put the best writing that you can that's clear 
correct uh, and informative. And so, yeah, writing is a huge communication period is a huge part of our job and effectively communicating because I always like to say we're translators. We take all this knowledge that we have over here and then we have to translate it into something that fire managers can um, digest and then use their expertise to make their decisions. Great. So I think Jim kind of changed the question though on me mm-hmm. because I asked how many times you're right in forecasting oh. with how many times you write? I thought I thought you asked how many times we write. Oh, like maybe I should have said correct. Enough. Enough. That's why I said 50-50. Yeah, better than 50-50, but enough. All right. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I know we rely. I know Sean always talks highly of you know the intelligence group. I mean, that makes their job makes their job. I mean, for predicting. where buyers are going to be, um, where resource allocations are going, that kind of thing, and, and really helps us manage the fire. So without you guys, we are, we're kind of stuck. So we, we, we do depend on you being right or correct yeah. <laughs> most of the time. And us understanding <laughs> or what you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Communication. Yes. Communication. Um, so how is it different being a meteorologist at, the, at NIC as opposed to the weather service? Um, it is quite a bit different, um, you know, having worked in both when I was in the weather service, I was dealing more on a much smaller area. And so I can get really down in the nitty gritty and, and really dial in on individual areas, uh, from a national perspective, um, we are looking, you know, all across the country. So to dial into things, we can't do it. So what we're trying to do is more a comparison, get a feel for which areas are going to be worse, you know, as far as, you know, what areas across countries that would be in the Northwest, is it going to be California? Is it going to be Alaska? Um, and trying to deal on that and then also paint enough of a picture of what's going on and why those conditions are going to be as bad as they are or, or, or improve. Uh, that's what we're trying to do from a national perspective. But in the weather service, um, it's definitely more on the ground. One of my friends that I knew in predictive services a long time ago once said, you know, our job is strategic. We're looking, you know, what, what do we have to do to help the decision makers make the best decisions to put people in the best position for success. Whereas in the weather service, you're more tactical. You're on the ground. Like as an incident meteorologist, you're there with the firefighters. And so you're looking at them on the individual fires where we're looking at as a larger picture. Well, that makes sense. So what do you do um, day to day at Nick? Nick? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I forget I forget my name. Um, otherwise, I'd be looking up every thirty seconds. Uh, well, it's the National Interagency Coordination Center, or NIC, or NIC. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> um, so day to day, you know, when we're you know busier, uh, you know, during the summer, spring, or even fall, it seems like now, uh, you know, like Jim said, we start pretty early. Uh, start working sometimes as early as 6 a.m. And usually uh, if we're sending out emails and briefing people, we're on the clock by 7. And we start looking at what happened. What happened yesterday? Was our forecast correct? What happened the last few days? Has our forecast been correct? Um, Has anything happened that's interesting or that we weren't expecting? Um, And because you have to get a feel of what is happening and what has happened to kind of set you up going forward. Then you start looking at forecasts. Uh, Where are we going to see fire activity? Uh, where are the weather patterns setting up that's going to get us 
busier than where we are now or and just as important where we're going to be slower um, because then that whole dance between where there's fire activity and where there's not fire activity you know activity helps the decision makers move re- firefighting resources around uh, so that in the first part of the morning the first half of the morning we're doing that we're doing forecasting uh, weather fire potential uh, and then writing it in emails preparing uh, briefings to give to various groups uh, and then usually by midday, it's more of watching the weather. Is everything coming out that we're expecting? Are we seeing new fires pop up? Is there weather that we, you know, uh, that we didn't forecast or something big that we did forecast that is happening? And we make sure we keep management in the loop. Uh, and then like Jim said uh, previously, then we write an email usually in the afternoon summarizing what's happening during that day, whether expected or unexpected. Uh, and then in our f- free time, <laughs> then we do, you know, administrative tasks, you know, we serve on, uh, training committees and do research, uh, and try to improve operations as we go. Okay. You add that, Jim? Um, not a whole lot to add. Nick did a great job covering everything. <laughs> uh, I mean, just to kind of elaborate a little bit more, like you mentioned the research, uh, part of it and then the, the committees, but I mean, we're also really want to we're looking at things that we could do to improve too when we have our free time, especially uh, in the quieter parts of the season and quieter parts of the year that we want to really see what we can do better. What can we improve on? Um, you know, what worked, what didn't. That's really becoming a part, of, a really important part of what we need to do in order to become and be- better serve our partners and better serve the uh, fire community. And so when you talk about improvement, like more like what kind of products you're developing and that kind of thing, or just in forecasting and... I was, I was just going to tag on to Jim. I, it, it's that, but it's also communication. Did you guys, we think we communicated this <laughs> to you guys. Did, is that what you right? received? Yes. yes. <laughs> and I think that is just as important as getting the forecast right. Because if you don't communicate it in a way that um, is understandable to people that need to know, then it's as if you didn't do the forecast. I'm just going to add on one thing because and just harp on the communication is one thing that uh, a firefighter once told me is, you know, you're here for a reason and it's not just to tell me what the weather is. I can get anybody up there and read off a forecast to me. I want someone to help me understand what I'm going to see out on the line. So that's part of our job is we have to paint the picture. It's almost like telling a story um, when you're, when you're up there uh, and, and painting that picture to get the understanding that we desire and, and we hope to provide. That makes, yeah, perfect sense because firefighters' lives and people's lives are on the line. So. Yeah, we get a lot of calls from the public and the media <clears throat> asking about that. So it's how you guys explain it. It's easier for us to turn around and explain it to the public and the media um, as well. So that's a great, great leading to that communication thing. So is it different than communicating to the public as opposed to like for firefighters or for fire management? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, we can say acronyms and lingo and all those things. Now it's, and then it's even different when we're talking to other meteorologists. And so you just have to know your audience and how to explain things. Um, And I always feel like I do a pretty good job talking to public or non-meteorologists about weather and about fire because I've always been talking to my family about that. I have a very large family and there's lots of questions. And I always joke that, you know, going through school, I had to break it down into very simple terms because a lot of the stuff we learn is 
heavy in mathematics and can be complicated. And so breaking it down and being able to teach it to people who have no idea of what weather is and how it comes about, I think is an integral part of being able to communicate and understand it effectively. Jim? <laughs> I, I don't really uh, have much to add really at this point because Nick really, I think really did a great job explaining it that, you know, you can take really complex uh, topics and if you break them down right, you can get almost anyone to understand. Um, there's, I, I, Nick, you might help me with this, but I know there's someone in our, in our meteorological community that says, if you can't explain um, what you're talking about and what your, your topic and, and weather uh, to a lay person, then you really don't understand what you're doing. Yeah. I, I can't remember who. I don't know who said that, but I've heard that multiple yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> So you practice. Yes, <laughs> yes. Practice on that. That brings me to the um, like the products. So the National Significant Wildland Fire Potential Outlook, um, and then there's the Seven Day Significant Fire Potential Outlook. So what's the difference between the two, Nick? <laughs> I'll take that one. Uh, so the National Significant uh, Wildland Fire. Potential outlook. Let me see if we made it <laughs> okay. such a complicated name. I even tr have trouble remembering exact uh, uh, what it is exactly. We affectionately we just, call just call it the it. outlook. Yeah, the monthly <laughs> seasonal outlook, uh, which you know we forecast above or below normal significant fire potential for the next four months. Uh, that essentially takes everywhere across the United States. We look at different areas and say what what sort of fire activity do they typically see this time of year, and based on uh, you know drought. Uh, and fuel and vegetation conditions and forecast weather and climate, do we think we're going to see above normal activity or above normal potential or below normal potential? And then those are the forecasts that go out. You know, that's great, much more longer term for uh, definitely on the strategic timescale of moving resources around. Do we bring, you know, aircraft on early? Do we extend crews later in the year? Those sorts of things are made based on those decisions. The significant fire potential outlook uh, that is just for seven days is much more short-term, obviously. Uh, and it is much more explicitly forecasting significant fires. Uh, it's still probabilistically based. Uh, you know, the colors do represent some sort of probabilities of seeing a new significant fire. Uh, you know, if you have the, the brown or moderate category, you're looking somewhere, you know, 5 to 15% probability of seeing a new large fire or a new significant fire. And then when you start seeing the oranges and reds, you're more 15 to 20%, 15 to 25% likely to see a new significant fire. Those sound like low numbers, but the chance of having a significant fire in a given location, even say, uh, you know, like a quarter of Idaho is pretty rare. So having a 25% chance might be five times or 10 times as high as what climatologically happens. And so those are the difference between the two products is that the seven-day much more explicitly forecasts significant fires. The monthly seasonal outlooks more of, we think these areas have the potential to have significant fires. And that's based on weather, obviously, weather patterns, fuels. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, weather, fuels, the entire fire environment is, goes into that. What's led up to that, you know, we even look at stuff that goes back one to two years and then looking out four months in terms of the climate forecast and obviously the predictability 
isn't always the best. And so that's why we base it more on potential rather than, yes, we're going to see above normal activity. One thing that I'll add on to that, and this is something, uh, you know, Nick makes a really good point to do every time we do a briefing, is when we talk about the potential, I mean, that's all it is, the potential. In order to realize that potential, we are going to need, you know, significant short-term weather to realize that potential. A, a good example is California in 2020. California, up until the middle of August, was relatively quiet. Yet the fuel situation was extremely dry. They were in a drought. We know the potential is really high there. We had the one lightning event in the middle of August, and then everything just cascaded um, at that point. So, you know, if you don't have that event, it may not, looking back, it might not have been, you know, that bad a season for California. But, you know, were we wrong to maybe highlight that? Probably not, because it all it would take is one event like that, and it really changes your outlook. So um, very important to fire management then to have these, both both products, I guess. How is that um, for people, just the general public, to look at those? Because I know they're available on our website. Um, I guess they would just need to look at this kind of the same way that this is, I mean, kind of, there's potential. So be aware when you're in these areas. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they are definitely geared towards fire management. Yeah. And the other thing that we say about the monthly seasonal, uh, you know, red, on the map usually indicates indicates above normal potential. But because there's no red, doesn't mean that there's not any potential. It means it's gonna be around normal. Well, a lot of times, in, you know, yeah, what's normal? <laughs> you know, Idaho gets fires in July yeah. and August. Yeah. So it's not to say that you won't get fires or even large fires, but it might just be a typical, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> uh, typical season or what you typically seen over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Have you seen that change at all in the last few years or, or see any trends changing? Like with your typical, <laughs> I'm using air quotes now too. Yeah. Your typical year. <laughs> you know, it's with fire data, you know, it it's tough because we really have about 20 or so years of really good fire data. And then if you squint and have some caveats, about 30 years of fire data. Um, so, you know, stuff that happened before, you know, the early 90s, there's records, and yes, there's some value to them, but the quality control, quality assurance of them, and completeness of them isn't all there. Yeah. Um, and fire operates on time scales much more decadal or century basis than they do year to year a lot of times. Having said all that, been in it for 13 years, I've got, you know, friends and mentors who have been in it 30, 40, 50 years. And they definitely have seen a shift in terms of the potential. Do we always realize that potential? No. But when we do, we've seen what happened in 2020 with the heat wave, the lightning, and then the very strong offshore winds that fueled, you know, the record setting fires all over the West Coast. And then last year with, you know, the longest time we were at preparedness level four and five on record. Uh, and so I think the potential is increasing. And then if you get those critical events, that potential unfortunately gets realized. Right. Well, and, and you see it firsthand, or you have seen it firsthand working as an IMET or instant meteorologist, right, Jim? I mean, just over the last 20 years, how, how can you see things have changed or have they? Um, I've definitely noticed uh, some changes 
um, just for even from my time in Reno. Um, we used to, you know, we Reno is known for getting strong downslope winds in the winter. In the, in the fall, winter, early spring, it's normal. It's kind of like going to the Front Range, Colorado, you know, the Chinooks up in Montana, all that, you know, it, it's typical in Reno. Uh, but we'd never really see those wind events ever overlap with uh, when we'd expect to see fires. And that, you know, it's from my first several years there in, in Reno uh, up until about 2011, you know, it wasn't a concern. And then we, we, we hadn't gotten rain until November, uh, until Thanksgiving, and we had a big wind event uh, and sparked a fire and uh, killed a person and burned, I think, about 30 homes in southwest Reno. That was a big wake-up call. And then it seems like that's been occurring more often, that the fire season or fire year is elongated in a lot of places. So in Reno, we used to not think, you know, once you got to October until about mm. maybe May, mid, you know, mid-June, and that still might have been early at the time, we didn't think about fires. You know, it's like, okay, we'll get a couple fires, but it's not dry enough. It's not going to go big. Yeah. It's not going to exactly. be bad. And, uh, but now, you know, we're, you know, in some years, like the drought years, we're starting to worry about it as early as the beginning of May. Sometimes late April, we're hearing about 500-acre fires. And then if we don't get any precipitation, like we didn't get any precipitation there, um, you're worried about fires well into December. And that's what's been going on just over in California, too. I mean, I don't remember hearing a whole lot growing up. You hear about the Santa Anas uh, back in the 80s and 90s. But to hear them up in Northern California in like November um, and these huge fires that we saw in, in between the Bay Area fires, the North Bay fires in 2017 and the campfire in 2018, that, that was starting to become a, a really a different kind of fire regime that we've seen. And, well, and kind of a weird anomalies that just happened, Marshall Fire, that wasn't really <laughs> predicted. I mean, we're in, in December in Colorado. Well, and it's the exact same yeah. setup. They didn't, they had like their warmest and driest fall on record, had like no snow on the ground. And Jim, as Jim said, those wind events come through in the winter quite often. And it doesn't matter because you've got snow on the ground or you've had enough moisture to where, like I said, it doesn't matter. But when you don't have those things, then fire's going to burn when fire's going to burn, <laughs> no matter what, what, if it's December 31st or if yeah. it's August 31st. Yeah. You just think when it's cold, it's just not going to burn yeah. <laughs> either. doesn't matter how dry it is. But <laughs> That's the one thing we, we've learned. You know, I've had to have beaten in my head uh, after I first started fire is I had a, a, a longtime fire behavior analyst tell me, like, really experienced. is like, you can give me a cold temperatures, you can give me higher RH, you know, relative humidity. But if you give me a strong wind, I can make just about anything burn. And so it's really the winds that are, are right. really driving, in a lot of cases, the fire environment. Which we're seeing in the southwest earlier, too, with those high winds picked up early yep. and earlier than expected as well. Yeah, people think that, oh, we've had rain and we've had snow. Why are we getting fires? And they don't understand, like, yeah, we might have had a little bit, but that's not impacting compounded years of drought that's happening too and then yeah wind is huge the one thing i heard last spring yeah this past spring you know, a few months ago was that at one point california you know parts of the sierra were an entire year of deficit over the last few years of precipitation which yeah you one storm usually won't make that up 
or even two. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we're looking here in just the Boise area and southwest, you know, southern Idaho, basically with all this rain that we've been getting on our weekends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Predicted last weekend, which we didn't have, but now we're looking at it really hot and dry, and all this grass is going to dry out. And so, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> What's going to happen? I. <laughs> You want me to take it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you take it. Man. They're uh, looking at each other yeah. like, who's going to take this one? No, I, I, I think it's really interesting because um, I've had questions recently about, you know, my area is an extreme or exceptional drought. Why am I not in red for the monthly seasonal outlook? And drought and wildfire, while they have a relationship, it's not a one-to-one correlation. And I think we're seeing that, I think, in Boise is, you know, just outside our window is – really interesting because especially in areas like rangelands or grasslands you need rain to grow the grasses because if you have you know you go out to some parts in great basin you have sagebrush here you walk 10 steps there's nothing then another (laughs) sagebrush that is not very conducive for large fires because you need more fuel more continuous fuel to fuel those uh large fires so if you have a wet period followed by then a brief or relatively brief warm and dry period, and then get a critical fire weather event where it's strong winds, low humidity, or, you know, very hot and dry followed by lightning, then you can get the large fires in a area that might not be in extreme drought. And so we are worried about the grass crop in parts of the Great Basin this year from the spring rains, which we were, a lot of these areas needed the rain, so it's always a double-edged sword. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens later this summer uh, if it dries out and, and if we have a, a long enough window for when those grasses dry out and we still have, quote unquote, fire weather, um, if it gives us a bigger season in the basin. So speaking of um, what we're going to see in the future, you know, I'm going to ask this. So what, what is the forecast looking like, uh, Jim? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say, I was just going to start off, that we're starting to feel a little bit more optimistic uh, about this fire season <laughs> overall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. But um, but what we've been seeing with it being so wet in the north, in the northwest, the northern Rockies, um, into the northern Great Basin, yes, we have a lot of grass. But in areas that were in drought, in some cases, they've been removed from drought. It's been so wet this spring. And, and so cool that it's actually really improved at, at least it's in the timbered areas. You know, the, a lot of those heavier fuels that are really rely on that, not only the amount of precipitation, but the long duration that we've had this spring, it, it's really benefited the timbered areas uh, up in the northern, northwestern United States. Uh, in the southwest, um, you know, it has been dry. It's been exceptionally windy there. But now they're heading into the monsoon season, and the monsoon has already started uh, very early and also very strong across much of eastern Arizona, New Mexico, into Colorado. And so what, they're, what we're expecting with that, with the rainfall and that lasting, that they are quieting down as, as we expected early in the season. But we still have concerns about, you know, California, um, the, the lower elevations uh, in the Great Basin, also in Oregon and Washington, where we have a lot of grass. Um, California and, and Southwest Oregon are going to be a concern as well, um, just because they are still in a long-term drought. And so the, the short bouts of precipitation they have had aren't you know, long enough duration or not enough to really make a huge impact in it. 
Um, as we go out into the plains, uh, we're expecting it to be warm and dry over the plains this spring, and they have a lot of grass left over from last year, and there wasn't as much snow cover. Um, so it didn't get matted down. A lot of it's still standing. And so if it's going to be hotter and drier, they're going to have a higher potential uh, for significant fires out in, out in the plains. Now, that's going to be away from the agriculture areas. If, you got, if you're being irrigated, it's going to be green and, uh, and it burns. <laughs> but, you know, I say that's one caveat to say about the plains. Yeah. And then uh, up in Alaska, um, it's, their season has started very aggressively. Um, it, it started a little bit quiet because they had a above normal snowpack in May, but their fire season is really tied to short-term weather. And at the beginning of June, they had a strong high-pressure loft, and that brought above normal temperatures and very dry conditions. And then they had a significant lightning event uh, during the second week of, of June, and they have numerous fires up there. And now that they're already you know, turning drier, they're expecting that to continue at least uh, through July. So And... Just to kind of mention how big it is up there uh, is the earliest Alaska um, has burned a, mi a million acres in recorded history. Oh, wow. Dang. So how, I was thinking about the lightning. Um, can you predict lightning? <laughs> yes. Just, I mean, three months from now, I mean, it just, yeah. it's always dependent on time and space, what sort of scale you want it predicted on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess it's based on, like, weather patterns and how things build up, right? So you're going to have the lightning. Because that's really what's going to drive. If we dry out, it's going to be the lightning. And hopefully people are doing their part by not, you know, causing fires, helping prevent fires. But that that's another significant problem we have. But um, the lightning is always an issue because multiple, multiple fires are caused. And people trying to get out there and put them out and never enough resources and hundreds of fires going on. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's, you know, that's what happens when we've seen these bigger lightning wildfire events is that you get too many fires to suppress and eventually some will get large. And it's, you know, we just saw, you know, California's on the tail end of a major lightning event right now this week, but their fuels weren't quite as dry as 2020 the lightning, the thunderstorms that produced the lightning were a little bit wetter than they were in 2020. Um, and so just those two mitigating things is why it's not as bad. And it's, you know, it's all that potential and those windows of opportunities that you have to realize that potential is what completely drives, you know, fire seasons or fire year, uh, you know, anywhere in the United States. I do have a question for Jim. What's the craziest thing you've seen on a fire in my mat as far as weather? Oh, my. That, you're really <laughs> putting me on the spot with that one. The craziest thing um, I've seen. Um, you know, Nick, Nick and I have been a little bit involved in some of the research on uh, fire-generated tornadoes, fire-generated vortices. And... Um, so one of the things I first remember seeing was I think uh, I was on, I was on a fire, a, a range fire in northern Nevada, uh, grass and sagebrush. And normally you'd start hearing about the, you know these bigger kind of vortices, you know big fire whirls or whatever. Uh, heard about Canberra in Australia, and there was also one uh, in Colorado in 2002. But I remember just kind of thinking, oh, uh, you know, it's not going to happen in grass and brush, or something like that. So 
the we had the fire was really active. Uh, put up a nice big column. You know, it had pyrocumulus on top. You know, it's kind of that white, you know, regular cumulus cloud on top. And then I remember seeing from camp, the whole column was rotating. And I thought, wow, that's really weird. <laughs> 20 miles away, you know, not understanding the research, but at that point, but also like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what's going on there. You know, I looked at the radar, it wasn't very good because it's looking up 10,000 feet above the ground there. But then I got reports coming in from the field, like, oh, people like, we just had the biggest firewall I've ever seen. You know, it, it's just something unbelievable. Is it a tornado? And I'm like, I, I don't know about that. We could call it a massive fire whirl. But what it had done, and it, the fire had burned through there, but the winds were so strong, too, that it stripped all the sagebrush. It looked like it wasn't burned. And all the loose dirt and rock that you normally see in the sagebrush, with, you know, in the wow. desert there, it could be like four to six inches deep, was picked clean. It was just bare mineral soil hard ground hard clay and it was something that really opened my eyes that that one this can happen and if this is probably a lot bigger than i thought but i didn't really think much of it until you know last couple years you know car fire the 2020 season creek royalton fires where you had these you know bigger events right that's crazy creating its own field break (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and we're and I th- thought was last was it last year or the year before where they were talking about pyro tornadoes or it seems like every year now yeah, yeah. Which, which is you know I I had you know you know the Australia one Southwest Colorado uh, and back in O two um, you'd hear about these large fire whirls or whatever but actually you know I think the car fire and uh, just you know outside of Reading was the first one where you had radar data and you had video of like, oh, holy smokes. And there had been other fires that like, oh, was that a fire whirl or maybe a pyro tornado or something, uh, including one in California. I forget what was that one uh, was that several years ago. Was that the Creek Fire? Oh, it was before that. There was a Loyalton. That no, was not Loyalton. It was like maybe Atlas Fire. I think, yeah, it was in the North Bay. Yeah, it was somewhere. Anyways, that that part's less important. But it we're, I th- you know, people ask me all the time: Are we seeing more of these? Or are we just actually noticing them? And that's really hard to to tell. I say kind of both, um, because it seems like now we have multiple fires each year where this stuff shows up. And yes, we have more people looking at it. We have more sophisticated uh, equipment to observe it. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's pretty insane having pyro tornadoes or like what do we term that? I mean, we were on the paper. We should probably remember. <laughs> fire generated fire generated tornadic vortices was the academic <laughs> yes. term that we came up with yes. that, that made everyone happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I remember our incident management team was on the Creek Fire, and and Jim was where um, I met, and we had multiple interviews that I think he conducted uh, uh, talking about that um, pyro tornado on the Creek fire. Yeah, um, I ended up doing the damage survey on that one, uh, on one of them, there are actually two of them on that fire. And uh, I think, you know, I didn't even see the sample, the damage from the stronger one. Um, I, the one I think was up on the, on the hill or whatever, I saw something else that, you know, 
it, it was different than I was expecting, but it's, it's amazing. You see it, the, you know, these are mature, you know, growth, you know, standing ponderosa pines, you know, snap, you know, over two, two to three feet in diameter snapped about 20 feet up, you know, just all the directions. And it's just, you know, think trees down left and right. And it's just, it's amazing to see that. Um, but I remember yeah, it, that, w- that was interesting. It was just something that we were really aware of uh, on the Creek fire after that happened. May go along with more, like the more extreme fire behavior we're seeing overall, it seems like on some of these large complexes and incidents, that's just generating more, <laughs> more opportunity well, for these types of things. Seeing the, the you know, uh, fire generated tornadic vortices, it also is coupled with an increase of pyrocumulonimbus clouds, you know, so pyrocumulus is, yeah, you get some puffy white clouds above your fire, but pyrocumulonimbus is essentially you have a massive thunderstorm or potential thunderstorm over your fire. And we've seen uh, a, quite a bit of an increase in occurrences of that across the entire world, not just in the United States. Um, it's still a relatively new science. It's been, people have been looking at it for what, 10, 15 years. Uh, but even in just the last decade or so, I mean, we've had Aust- the black summer in Australia, 2020 for us, where, you know, we're having dozens of these events in a year to where you go back 10 years from now and they were seeing five, 10 a year in a, in a country, maybe. Um, so yeah, it's, there's definitely trends and it's always part of we're looking. And so we see it more, mm-hmm. but most people would feel comfortable saying, yes, it's increasing. How about um, fuels and fire danger reporting? How are you involved with that at all? Um, just, is that we, like with the fire behaviorist, I guess? We use it a lot. I mean, it's an integral part of our job. Um, most of the fire danger calculations and the fuel sampling is done at the local level. And then we kind of reap the benefits of that. Um, there's a lot of people at region or national offices that help train the people at the local level and help kind of quality control, quality assure of what's going on. Um, but we aren't directly involved in that. Um, but like I said, we use it all the time. Okay. I was just curious how that all plays. I mean, I guess it's all part of the predictive services and how it plays together. And, and so us being meteorologists, as much as we use it, um, Steve Larrabee, who's the uh, fire analyst, analyst that we work with at, at the coordination center, He's much more involved in that day-to-day, you know, monitoring it, you know, seeing if there's any discrepancies and, and looking at the trends. And so that's something, like, we talk to Steve all the time. It's just constant, like, can't tell you, we probably have several conversations a day about different things that he's seeing and we're seeing. So we try to, you know, really work closely together. So we're aware of it, but we're not directly involved. Yeah, I can see that being an integral part of the forecasting, I mean, for fire management as well, playing in with the weather also what the fuels have and the potential there. All right. Well, in closing, is there anything you'd like to mention or add that we may have missed? I mean, I, I think it, I'm going to speak for Jim here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, the one thing that um, is cool about our job is uh, we love it. Like, you know, if you ask me, 10 years ago, where do you want to be? And it was in this job. And so I'm, I'm thankful every day to work with people like Jim and, and Megan and Steve and others at Nick uh, and 
within predictive services across the nation. Uh, a lot of really hardworking, dedicated people, talented people. You get to geek out with them a little bit, you know, <laughs> on fire and weather. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just, I feel like it's really cool to go to work um, and feel you get to do something that you love doing and you get to feel like you're making a difference. Um, and that's why we keep waking up early every day in the summer, <laughs> even though we get a little groggy and sleepy. Because uh, we want to make sure you know, fire management has the right resources to make their decisions. Cause at the end of the day, it's about the boots on the ground, trying to keep them as safe as possible and making sure the public is safe and as informed as possible. Uh, and we play a small part in that, but we want to make sure we do our best. And we thank you for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Nick said it really well. And the, the only thing I'm going <laughs> to add is like, you know, some of these positions and things like we talk about our journeys in fire. Um, this position when I started in weather didn't even exist. And so, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there, you know, just not just in fire, but just in general that I, I think is really good to note for anybody, you know, whatever field they're in. There's a lot of opportunity out there and uh, just be able to, you know, look for it, keep your eyes open and, uh, you know, try to find something you really enjoy that you feel like you're making a difference. Like Nick said, it, it's just it's the most rewarding um, job I've ever had. And I'm really appreciative to be here and to to be here with all you and then to explain to everyone, all the listeners out there. Well, we, like I said before, we really appreciate all you do for us too in public affairs when we get these calls about outlook and predictions. And it's like, oh, I can read off of what you guys said, but it's really better coming from you. <laughs> always, always happy to help. Even yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see our numbers come up on your phone. You're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Well, thank you, Nick and Jim, for joining us today for the seventh episode of Wildfire Matters and taking the time to explain what a Nick meteorologist does, weather is such an important part of fire management from planning, pre-planning, on-the-ground suppression tactics. Um, so we appreciate all you do and the work that goes into the fire outlook and also the media and Bruce, I'm going to say that again, uh, you so willing to do for us throughout the year. Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you all for listening. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with a Bureau of Land Management firefighter to talk about suppression operations and wildfire management from a boots-on-the-ground perspective. Until, Until then, then, stay, stay safe, safe and, and be wildfire, wildfire aware. aware.